Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. I'm Stephen English and with me today is Neil Morrison and David Emmett. And we'll be talking about the pre-season testing that we've seen in uh, Valencia and Jerez for MotoGP. So David, good to see you again and uh, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you very much. I uh, didn't join you and Neil down in that there um, uh, Jerez for the test, but then it seemed to rain for quite a lot of it, so it wasn't quite so bad. In fairness, actually, Neil missed out on the two days that were even wetter than the three days he went down for. So it was only me down there for the week that got uh, pretty much seven days of rain down in Spain. But, uh, Neil, it was a good test all the same to get down to. It was indeed, yeah. yeah. It, was good to, uh, it was good to see some of the World Superbike guys in action again. Um, and some of their times were very impressive indeed, especially when we compared them to, to the MotoGP guys that were there. But I'm sure we'll come on to that in due course. Yeah, most certainly, Neil. But... Uh, the one test that I think everyone has been excited about for a long time was the Valencia test. And we'll talk briefly about the Valencia race, but uh, pretty much just like all of us down in Valencia at the Grand Prix, none of us really cared too much about the race. It was just, <laughs> let's get ready for Tuesday. See Lorenzo on, on Ducati, Vinales on the Yamaha and a couple of different things. But David, it was an interesting race all the same that we saw down in Valencia. And we saw Lorenzo really come back to back to form again. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, the big difference was the fact that he had tyres that worked for him and uh, he it was, you know, typical Lorenzo, just get on the bike, lead from the start and, and disappear. Um, it was, I mean, it wasn't, it, it wasn't a classic race for first place, but there was a really, really, you know, a, a good race uh, broke out for second. Um, that certainly made it entertaining. But yeah, I mean, you know, Lorenzo was just, it was clear it, like he wanted he, he said before the uh, before the start he wanted to um, uh, to to uh, to leave Yamaha by giving them a gift of a win but i think he also wanted to leave them with a tiny little message that um, uh, perhaps they shouldn't have um, uh, they should have been a bit nicer to him and he might have stayed after all yeah there was that and there was also uh, something uh, a message to Ducati in that final performance of the of the season where you know he was basically saying that uh, this is what I can do when I have the tools at my disposal. So it's up to you guys to, to make sure that I have those tools for next year. I think there was part of that in it. And then there was also the, the small thing of uh, Valentino Rossi's record from the end of 2003 and the start of 2004 where he won back-to-back -back races on different uh, manufacturers. And I'm sure Jorge will be looking at uh, Qatar in 2017, um, you know, a track that he is fantastic around, uh, the same with Ducati. And he's probably eyeing up that record as well, I'd imagine. David, we've obviously seen in the past when, as Neil said, when uh, Rossi went from Yamaha to Ducati and just how difficult it was for him. But we also saw that there was, you know, a welcome back with open arms for him back at Yamaha a couple of years later. What's uh, what's been your feeling on on how the Lorenzo era will be remembered at uh, Yamaha, and then also just whether or not you were talking to anyone in the team at Valencia? Um, I think um, uh, Yamaha are extremely aware of what they're losing now that Lorenzo is going, uh, because uh, well, as he demonstrated during the race, they, they they know what he's capable of. They know he can win races. They know he can uh, he, he can win championships. Um, they know he can uh, you know totally dominate when everything when when he's got the bike working for him. Um, I don't I didn't sense any great how can I put it I didn't. Sense, sense any great sort of uh, sadness or r regret other than um, uh, I mean obviously losing 
uh, well, one of the very best, one of the best riders in the world is always painful. But it felt a little bit, also a little bit like when uh, Rossi left Yamaha, there was also not much, um, how can I put it, not much regret. There was a lot of, uh, you know, they were, they were, okay, you're going that's that's your choice get on with it and uh, uh and it, you know if you want to come back you can definitely come back uh, throughout the weekend um uh, all of yamaha staff made it very clear that you know if lorenzo changed his mind after two years they'll the, the the door is still very much open to him uh of course with uh, uh valentino rossi maverick vinales who would uh, who would have to make way for him might be a slightly different question but what i found more interesting was uh, i mean i spoke to wilco zielenberg quite a lot about um, um, uh, the things that um, about what he saw with Lorenzo, or especially about tires, because I wanted to sort out this question of um, uh, of Lorenzo, uh, Lorenzo tires, edge grip, that sort of thing. Um, and w- what was interesting was that in. F- in fact, for the past few races, that uh, Zinnenberg has already been turning his attention to Vinales a little bit, uh, a little bit more. I mean, obviously he's, he's out there working for uh, working for Lorenzo because he goes out and sort of stands at trackside and spots what's going on. But when uh, Lorenzo wasn't in view, then he was very much looking to uh, looking at what Maverick is doing. Um, uh, he was uh, quite impressed with uh, with uh, with how just how quick uh, Maverick and uh, Maverick was from the start. So um, it was, yeah. I I think it is, um, yeah. How can I put it? I mean, uh, th- there is. Yeah, the, the sense I got was that Yamaha was sad to were they they were sort of slightly sad to see uh, Lorenzo uh, going, but uh, they were also very happy to see Maverick coming. Yeah, if you're not looking forward, you're going backwards, really, in MotoGP. And Neil, I know you've talked to a couple of teams in similar situations with riders leaving or engineers leaving, and just how difficult the situation gets. For I think a uh, Jack Miller's team being a prime example, just how difficult it was whenever he lost his crew chief to see uh, Gabarini go to work with Lorenzo at Ducati and we saw a similar kind of thing where the team started looking forward and HRC started looking forward and uh, for Miller it was definitely to his detriment. Yeah it's true yeah and I guess you could also say the same for, for Scott Redding. I mean uh, as soon as it was announced that his crew chief was uh, going to be moving across to Danny Petros's garage um, you could see Redding's results mainly um, you know take a turn for the worse. Um, and it was interesting what Jack Miller was saying on the Tuesday at the test um, he and Tito Robant, his teammate, uh, had been given the the chassis that Cal Crutchlow had used basically from the, the Bruneau test um, and the Silverstone race onwards. Used it to great effect, you know, got a string of great results with that chassis. Uh, and both Miller and Robant were saying that they felt, you know, an immediate improvement with the front end. Uh, you know, the part of the, the bike that they'd really been struggling with for um, for Rabat all season, for Miller more or less two seasons um, since he moved up to the top class. And there was also a big electronics uh, upgrade that uh, that they both received. And Miller was saying that basically HRC had held that back um, from the Mark VDS team until the end of the year, until Gabarini, uh, Miller's crew chief in 2015 and 16, um, who's now going to be Lorenzo's crew chief in 17, um, until Gabarini had moved on because I guess they felt that, you know, um, sharing this electronics upgrade with with that team would uh, would give Gabarini perhaps some information going to Ducati, um, who I'm guessing Honda must see as one of their main rivals in 2017. Yeah, I mean, th- this is one of the downsides of the uh, spec software, the fact that everyone is using the same software. And so uh, um, even though, you know, the, the engines all work differently, 
um, the actual sort of concepts behind the behind the various engine mapping, um, uh, the various torque maps which are being used, uh, could be could be transferred from from bike to bike and from manufacturer to manufacturer. So yeah, this is it, it's one of those sort of unexpected uh, uh, downsides to. Uh, the cost cutting, which has become the uh, the the single software, so that was uh, that was uh, yeah, that was very interesting. And again, uh, as you said, Rabat was all of a sudden uh, during the test. Uh, I wouldn't say significantly quicker, but he was a lot closer to the uh, to the rest of the field than he has been all season. And uh, David, just um, when you look at uh, the challenge for someone like Tito coming in, obviously the spec software was one thing, but the new Michelin tires as well. Um, obviously created a, a big challenge for everyone. We saw a press conference from Michelin as well, just talking about their season as a whole. And I just want to know what both of your thoughts were as we, we come to the end of that season. I thought Michelin did a very good job considering it's a, a first season back in the class for them. And whenever you've had such an established tyre like what we had from the Bridgestone, obviously for the teams and the riders to try and get to understand something new, it was a big challenge. But when we look at the season now that it's finished, what the first thing that jumps out to you for Michelin? For me, it was, um, I think they actually did much better than expected. Uh, and they also faced some extremely uh, some extremely unfavourable conditions. Just everything seemed to work against them uh, in that we had weird weather. It was un- unusually cold or it was unusually wet. Um, and so they had to be changing their tyres uh, a lot just just to cope with uh, conditions which they hadn't faced when they'd been testing the, in the previous year. With so they had they had no data. Um, they reacted quickly when they had to. They made a fair few mistakes. There. I mean, I think they went they went way too hard with their tires a few times. Um, but uh, apart from uh, apart from that. Uh, they certainly improved their front tyre. Uh, the Valencia Test 2015, uh, everyone was dropping like flies, and they changed the, uh, the, the because everyone was washing the front out. Uh, they changed the construction of the uh, uh, and the profile of the front tyre, and that made a big difference. Uh, they changed it again for 2017. That's going to uh, help even more. So um, overall, I think they've done extremely well, um, given the uh, truly unusual challenges they've uh, had to face yeah i would go along with that i would say that um you know this time last year we were sitting here wondering just how just how difficult it was going to be um for them after the the valencia test um i think there were as david said there were some incredible um sort of weather conditions and track conditions that they had to put up with you know there was argentina um, you know, just truly unique conditions, and uh, not just the track, but the weather, um, the temperature, um, uh, lots of different things. And you know, we went to Germany in the middle of summer. Um, Michelin went there expecting temperatures to be above twenty all weekend, and on the Friday, I think the temperature was something around eight or nine degrees. And you know, just little things like that were uh, were they really were kind of caught out, not through really any fault of their own. Um, and I think you know, when when the track conditions have you know, work to their favour and have been what they expected, you know, like in Qatar, like in Valencia, for instance, you know, they, they showed that they could be faster than last year, um, you know, and, and riders could, could ride them, you know, in a, not in the same way as Bridgestone, but essentially in a similar way where the front tyre reacted in a vaguely similar kind of style fashion to, to the Bridgestone tyre, front tyre, which had gone before. Yeah, and I think uh, when you look at what Michelin are, are having to do, it's, it's actually quite similar as well to what we're going to see KTM have to do as well next year, guys, because obviously they've brought in an awful lot of knowledge from other teams, but 
you know, a new team coming into the championship and, and we got the first real signs of what we can expect from them with uh, Mika Callio racing at the weekend and then Bradley Smith and Paulus Bagaro both jumping on the bike on the Tuesday and Wednesday for the test. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, to me, well, Calio performed more or less as expected. You, you know, he hasn't been racing for a uh, for a year, so you know he's going to be half a second to a second off the pace. Um, they were unfortunate in that they were forced to pull out of the race uh, due to a technical problem, but that's always going to be the year case, if I remember correctly. Uh, when uh, Suzuki at uh, Suzuki also did a wild card at Valencia, they blew up a bunch of engines and had uh, uh, to turn the turn the wick right the way down for the race. Um, uh, Bradley Smith is really hard to to say where uh, uh, how fast. Bradley Smith is on the bike because he's still got you know huge problems with his uh, with his leg. Um, won't really be able to understand that until uh, Sepang next year. Uh, Paul uh, Paul Espargaro did reasonably well, I reckon. Um, still, you know, they're a, they're a, a second or so uh, off uh, off the pace of the. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, they're they're about sort of half a second or so off the, off of the top ten. It's what you might expect. It's what you might hope. Um, obviously, they've got a lot of work to do. Uh, I still expect them to be more like um, uh, Suzuki, where in Suzuki's first year, than uh, Aprilia in their first sort of uh, official year. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. But again, it's also going to be difficult. We've got six factories in uh, in MotoGP next year. That's twelve riders, um, uh, all decent riders. There are not really any bad uh, uh, factory bikes anymore. Even the Aprilia has made huge uh, steps forward. So KTM have really got their work cut out. Yeah, I'll go along with that. And, you know, um, being in Valencia for the test uh, and then being done in Jerez, you know, you could really see um, one of the, the things that Bradley Smith said um, when he was talking about, you know, his first experiences with the team in the bike was just the amount of people that were, you know, waiting to hear what he had to say as soon as he dismounted the bike and came back into the garage. You know, rather than three technicians, he had about 15 or 20. And you definitely get that impression going into the, the KTM garage. It is just, you know, stacked with technicians of all sorts of uh, varieties. Um, also, you look at... Uh, Obviously, Mike Leitner is the team manager uh, who used to be Danny Pedrosa's crew chief. Um, and I think a lot of the technicians in Paul Espargaro's side of the garage are, you know, previously employed by HRC. So those are guys that basically know how, you know, a team at the highest level operates, you know, over the course of a race weekend. Um, you know, so there's a great amount of experience in there already. Um, but just with the bike being in this current, you know, very, very early stages, um, the, you know, Bradley Smith said in Valencia that they were barely even able to, uh, to you know, to go into sort of suspension and chassis specifics because the electronics were so far away from what he felt and what Paul felt they needed to be. Um, so he said basically it took the, the entire two days at Hareth, you know, testing in good weather, testing with both riders um, for them to go through and sort out the engine braking issues, you know. And then in Hareth again, he said it was all about going through, you know, traction control. Um, you know, an engine mapping and things like that. Um, so I think, you know, KTM are just going to be going step by step through this, um, through this kind of program. And yeah, I think it's, yeah, I don't know, it, it's difficult to really gauge where they could be, say, this time next year. Um, but I certainly think the first six, seven races of the year will probably be looking to maybe, you know, score 
a few points here and there um, before you know maybe making another step um, another step forward say you know half way through the season yeah because I thought it was interesting Neil whenever we went down to talk to the riders between each of the different tests and just what was happening and it was interesting that like at the first test as you say a lot of the time was just spent just concentrating on those things like the engine braking for Bradley and he said that most of the work that Calio has been able to undertake for the team has been really positive. It's just a case of he's not quite in the loop about what a, a full-time contemporary MotoGP rider needs. So things like the engine character being quite good was uh, a positive for KTM, but then just how they needed certain elements in that, like the electronics, as you said, whether it was the traction control they were working on in Hareth or the engine braking they were working on in Valencia. It's just those small steps that they need, the, the likes of Smith and Espagaro with their knowledge from the Yamaha just to be able to bring them up to speed. And David, you've obviously seen a lot of times where, whether it was Suzuki a couple of years ago or whether it was this time with KTM, just how difficult it is to really get the right feedback in place right from the outset for a, a manufacturer to be able to make the jump. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, the the the, the real problem is that um, uh, if someone is fast enough to be a uh, to be a genuine test rider, then they're usually fast enough to actually uh, uh, you know to, to be ra- to be want to be racing themselves. Um, that makes things an awful lot more uh, a lot more complicated. It's also just indicative of the luxury position which uh, Ducati finds themselves in, with uh, having a Piro, Piro who still regularly races even though he's not quite fast enough to be competitive in Moto in MotoGP um, and of course uh, a, a certain Mr Casey Stoner who is uh, clearly still fast enough um, and capable of giving uh, giving the right uh, the, the the right feedback uh, so it's um, uh, yeah, it is difficult I mean what I found most interesting was that uh, the most interesting thing which they said was I can't remember if it was the uh, if it was Mike Leitner or uh, uh, is it Paul Trevay the uh, uh, the crew chief for yep for Paul. Uh, yeah exactly for for uh, Bradley Smith uh, not Bradley Smith sorry Paul. for for, for Paul Espargaro. Um, uh, they said you know well during testing we have had lots and lots of uh, <laughs> well, they, well they didn't realise that the uh, lack of traction that the rear spin you know the the rear spinning up out of corners. Uh, that that was uh, such a big deal uh, during uh, um, in terms of their competitiveness because they had no comparison, they had no way of comparing uh, sort of their performance against others, and it was only actually at the Valencia race uh, when they were riding with other bikes that they were seeing how much they were losing coming out of on, on corner exit, just in terms of you know a lack of uh, a lack of reattraction. So these are the things that you don't know. I mean, you you can be riding a bike and it can feel fantastic, uh, uh, but then you find out that the reason it feels fantastic is because because it's uh, it, it's not as good as uh, as other bikes in other in other places, but that's why that's why you go racing to find these things out. Yeah, Neil, um, they did approach this as being their Grand Prix Zero, I think, is how they were dubbing it. But uh, when you look at uh, inside the box, when you as you said, like the amount of guys that they've brought across from top teams in the past, whether it was Leitner with his HRC experience or mechanics or engineers. But it certainly looks like they're they're going about things in the right way. Yeah, it does. It definitely does. Yeah, um, we were speaking to a, a, a former 
uh, HRC mechanic that's not working in, in Bradley Smith's garage um, at the Jerez test, um, and he was just kind of saying there's there's some kind of open, you know clear differences in working between you know a Japanese manufacturer and and KTM. Um, he was saying that uh, if a part on the bike needs changing in in Honda, for example, and you go to one of the bosses to say so. You know they'll have to make a call to Japan, and you know there'll be some discussions at boardroom level, and then you'll maybe get a, an answer forty minutes later, and then they'll say, "Okay, right." And a Japanese a Japanese engineer will be told that they have to then change this part of the bike race. He said, "KTM, you say this to to one of the the team bosses or uh, you know one of the personnel high up personnel at the track, and they say, "Okay, right. Well, can you change that?" And they were giving him. In this instance, you know, a greater deal of uh, responsibility in the garage. Um, you know, and I kind of spoke to Paul Trevathan, um, Paul is Park Rose crew chief at Arath, and, and he was saying that, you know, there's been a few instances throughout the, you know, this throughout 2016 when they've been testing and they've maybe come up with an idea or come up with, uh, with some technical feature that they think would work on the bike just before a test and they think it would be really useful and you know Paul said that it was just a case of saying to Pit, Pit Byer who I think is in control um, you know in charge of most of KTM's uh, racing affairs um, you know Pit would make them one phone call to Stefan Pirer who's the CEO of KTM Pirer would okay it and pretty much they would get you know the go ahead there and then you know and the, there's definitely a sort of a, an enthusiasm that goes right the way up in the KTM you know, sort of uh, organization. Um, and there's also, you know, a kind of, uh, you just get the impression that they're, they just say, right, if you feel that it's, it's the right thing to do, let's do it, you know. Uh, money certainly doesn't seem to be an object. And, um, you know, they're, they're kind of, yeah, they're, they're not scared to kind of throw money at something if they think it's going to, if they think it's going to improve the bike. Yeah, money's no object and a lot more enthusiasm. And Neil, the same could also be said for Vignale is going to Yamaha as well. Obviously, Yamaha's, Lost Lorenzo to Ducati, but uh, a lot of people saying that uh, this is potentially a big positive step forward for the team as well. And when you look at what Vinales did on the bike on the first couple of days, and indeed what we've what we've been rumoured to have heard about what he did at uh, Sepang as well, it really looks like Yamaha's hit a home run with bringing Vinales in. Obviously, everyone knows how talented he is. He's had two years in the Suzuki, and now he's really primed to jump onto one of the best bikes in the grid and challenge for a championship. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. Um, you know, in some ways, you know, some doubts persisted um, over Vinales, and maybe they still do, um, because you know he had a fantastic season. There were a few occasions, you know, at the the tail end of the year that we saw him challenging for the lead or challenging for the podium, and maybe he would just start to flag towards the end of the race, like we saw it in Aragon, for example, or we saw it in Valencia, where he was battling for you know second or third and ended up just didn't quite have enough in the end um but you know i think we could probably say that he was riding that suzuki you know package to its absolute limit um and you know i think you look at the guy's career he won his fourth ever one two five grand prix he won the first ever moto three race he won his second moto two race Okay, MotoGP took a little bit more time to adapt but that's because he was on a new bike in a new team with a new crew chief who had never been a crew chief before um, you know, this is a guy that is incredibly adept at adapting at uh, a very rapid pace. Um, and, you know, we saw it again. He was straight away very fast in the Yamaha at Valencia. Um, and then his, you know, his, his, his fastest time on, on the second day on Wednesday was uh, was fantastic. Um, and, yeah, you know, i got to say, I think seeing how Vinales adapts to the Yamaha team, 
how he fits in, how Rossi reacts to him whenever he starts, you know, I think it's inevitable that Vinales will beat Rossi in some races next year. Um, you know, I think that's probably the the most exciting thing for me going into 2017, seeing how this, uh, how this relationship, you know, what direction it takes. Yeah, and for me, like, I think when I look at Vinales this year, I thought definitely made a big step forward, but there was still some... Some weaknesses there for him. If you remember back to Aragon, Dave, uh, not sorry, Aragon, Catalonia, that was probably for me one of the most ragged races I've seen from Vinales in years. Just basically putting the bike down the inside of everyone and just trying to make moves at every corner, even when there was no real chance of making them stick. But for you, David, like, did you see anything that you that jumps straight off the sheets in that he needs to get better at for next year or? Into year three, is he is he ready to be that t- uh, title contender that I think everyone's going to talk him up to be for next year? I think he is going to be that title con- uh, contender. I think he's going to be ready. I uh, went out and watched trackside uh, as I try to do at every Valencia race to actually you know see how the riders are like, what they actually look like on the bike physically in terms of body language uh, and in terms of riding style. And it took the first day, it it took Vinales a little while to sort of uh, adapt his style a little bit. The Yamaha, I mean, um, the Suzuki is a little bit more agile, um, uh, but it has less, uh, it, it has less uh, exit drive. Basically, drive on the exit of corners. Um, uh, the Amar is just outstanding on the uh, uh, on the exit of corners. Um, so I was standing up at uh, uh, turn thirteen, fourteen. Watching uh, Vinales come over the uh, over the uh, the hill and then into the sharp uh, left hander and then drive onto onto the straight and you could see the first day he was still sort of taking uh, Suzuki lines if you like and he was getting a little bit better at it um, uh, on the uh, on the second day he was uh, learning to exploit the characteristic of the Yamaha more uh, so clearly he's capable of uh, of adapting um, the. Suzuki and Yamaha are similar enough in terms of sort of just plain corner speed they're but they're both very strong corner speed bikes um uh so that was um uh, th- that's one less thing for him to have to adapt to uh, he already carries a lot of corner speed anyway um it was a shame that we couldn't speak to uh Vinales it was also a little bit odd because uh, Suzuki had been had given him clearance to speak if he wanted to but it was Yamaha who was preventing us from speaking to him um uh again a little strange but uh that's their prerogative of course um but he looks happy uh it, and it's clear he's going to be fast there were so i did see some times on facebook um uh for the sepang test but there are times on facebook so that's well um th- th- that gives you an indication of exactly how uh, trustworthy they are they may be accurate they may not be accurate but uh if the US election taught us one thing it's that we can trust everything we read in Facebook David come on well well quite quite um uh, that showed the that showed both the, uh, I think Rossi fastest but within uh, with um uh, Vinales just a a few hundredths off the time of uh, uh, of Rossi, so basically they were equally fast. It looks like they're both going to be you know very quick. Um, we'll see for sure. Will come uh, Sepang at the end of January. Yeah, I th- I think uh, another thing that w- was quite interesting. Steve, you spoke to to Mayo Marigali, 
who's the, the team boss of, uh, of the movie star Yamaha team uh, at Valencia and it was it was quite interesting what he was saying he was saying that he wasn't surprised by the speed you know they had kind of been expecting that but it was sort of like the the clarity of his uh, of his feedback and his you know the direction he wanted the bike to go in uh, that, that was most impressive um, you know and, and speaking to a few people in the paddock I've heard that when Vinales is negotiating you know certain deals for for example you know uh, his helmet deal or his, his leather deal you know he goes into it and he basically says like right I want this this and this and that's it you know and there's a real clarity with with you know what he feels is, is necessary for him you know like some riders faff around and there's a lot long term sorry there's a long time you know between negotiating but Vinales is very straight and very clear you know and obviously his focus is is one of the things that stands out um, and you can kind of imagine him when he's in that garage working with someone like Ramon Forcada, that team that has worked around Lorenzo for years and had so much success. Um, you have a guy who's 21 coming in there and, you know, with absolute conviction saying that I feel the bike should go in this way. It's, um, yeah, it's very impressive indeed. Yeah, and that, that clarity, Neil, it's been one thing that uh, Vinales' replacement that Suzuki's never really been uh, well known for, for Andre Iannone. But uh, we saw Iannone have his first couple of days on the bike and he also had one day in Hareth and he looks like he's, he's, uh, he's gotten himself quite comfortable with it right from the outset and I think there's, there's no doubt about his speed and his talent and I think the second half of this year as well he really made a big step forward with the Ducati as well but uh, what, uh, what was your general fe- feeling whenever you watched him out in track David? Um, I was um, impressed. He was just, you know, he he was genuinely quick on the uh, on the Suzuki. Um, he adapted to it very well. Uh, it clearly suits his style. Again, he you know he likes to carry a lot of corner speed, and um, and it certainly allowed him to do that. It allowed him to break um, uh, the way that he wanted to, uh, because it was certainly better than the than, than the Ducati on the brakes. Um, so yeah, he just he just looked really good, and he was obviously very very quick. Um, a little bit difficult to tell uh, exactly how far he is because you know he is still recovering from the. The fractured vertebrae which he suffered at Misano and that's still a little bit of a problem he's still in pain with that um, he ma- also managed to fall off um, at uh uh, at Valencia, there was a, there were a few big crashes at Valencia because uh, again because of the cold conditions, it was very cold during the test. Um, we were all shivering away in our house um, uh, 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 just outside of Cheste, um, uh, and the especially in the mornings it was cold. There were people sort of tipping it in to sort of turn twelve, uh, uh, right hand side of the tire, still a bit cold. Um, uh, even in a even in a straight line, people were uh, crashing and. And um, uh, a couple of people got banged up. Sam Lowe's got banged up. Um, Iannone had a big crash. Uh, Alex Rince had a huge crash, and that um, uh, that basically put an end to his uh, his test because he also fractured a couple of vertebrae. Uh, and to be perfectly frank, Iannone was impressive, but Rince was worrying for me because he, even before he crashed, he was slow. Yeah, uh, just to add as well, David, it was that cold that you needed to have a, a couple of glasses already, even just to. <laughs> Just to settle, settle the coolness out of you. But uh, I thought, like, yeah, looking at uh, Rins, definitely, like, I think we've all talked ourselves up into seeing Rins as being this guy that can move from Moto3 to Moto2 to MotoGP. And, you know, he was always the guy that Factory Yamaha were going to be after. But that first couple of hours on a MotoGP bike, he didn't look comfortable on it at all. He didn't look at ease. And, like, there's plenty of time until 
the next uh, until the next test in Sepang and then Phillip Island and Qatar before he actually has to get ready for the start of the season. But I actually can't remember a time I've seen someone look that bad on their first MotoGP uh, outing. Even Pekka Bagnaya on the Aspar Ducati looked more comfortable. Oh yeah, Pe- actually Pekka looked fantastic. Um, it, it's just that he was riding it like a Moto3 bike, which was just trying to carry as much corner speed as possible um, and taking these wide sweeping lines. But again, uh, I think he did something like 10 or 11 laps and you could see lap by lap that he was adjusting his lines. He was starting to get uh, get um, uh, you know get his bike straight and all the rest of it. I was really impressed with, uh, with uh, actually just watching Banya. I mean, obviously he was... Uh, you know, end of the day as as the as more or less the slowest, but that's because he he only did a, a few laps and it was a, more of it wasn't a real test for him. Um, again, yeah, Rince, I think you're right. I think we have to talk to ourselves into a uh, we we've sort of believed our own hype. Um, and we have to wait and see what's going to uh, become of him. But he does have a long time to uh, to recover, and we shall see. Sure. I mean, there is, uh, you know, I think we do need to, to temper those those fears for a little while at least because, you know, Rins is coming off a fairly rotten uh, last third of the season. Um, I think Mizano was probably the last time that we saw him ride anywhere near as good as we know we can. Um, you know, he had a pretty disastrous injury ravaged uh, flyaway, you know, triple header. And then, you know, you could just see that the confidence wasn't there. Um, as he was racing in the in the final race of Valencia, so you know, I think it's going to take Alex some time, not just to adapt, but also to build his confidence back up again. Because you know, this time last year he was the he was the hot shot, he was the next Maverick Vinales, he was the next big thing going to step up. And okay, he secured his factory contract, but he quite meekly uh, surrendered, um, you know, a Moto2 championship, which, you know, frankly was there to be won, um, you know, from his side. And, you know, there's probably, there's probably going to be a lot of introspection in the coming months, um, you know, and He's going to have to, you know, train hard and just build himself back up again slowly. I think, um, you know, the, the winter break is coming at a, a very good time for him. Um, uh, you know, he is a definite talent. There's no doubt about that. You know, his talent is probably, you know, I don't know. I think, um, I think, yeah, it's, it's far too early to judge. Um, and I think, you know, he still could be a very, a very good rider. He's going into, you know, a team and a crew that, that did so well with Vinales. That is going to still be the same crew chief and crew that work with Maverick. Um, so, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, Alex probably wasn't uh, wasn't the best start but we can expect a lot more i think in 2017 yeah definitely neil like as i said it's it's very early doors yet for you know qatar and in, in march we still got three full tests left before that so more than enough time for vinales to get or sorry for rins to get himself comfortable and up to speed and the key thing is i think uh, when you look at uh, what we expect from rookies as well i think it's very easy for us to think like well, Marquez came in and you know, he was fighting for the podium in his first race, won his second race and things like that. Whereas really the ideal that you're looking for is something like what we saw with Vinales, where he came in, he learned a lot in the first half of the season, didn't really, um, wasn't really any more impressive than what we saw from Alicia Spagaro on the other Suzuki. But then in the second half of that rookie year, he made a big step forward and uh, really pushed himself to a, a lot closer to the front than what Espagaro was doing. And that's really what we need to see from the like of, of Rins or, you know, um, you've got Lowe's on the Aprilia, you've got uh, Zarco and Folger, where it's just where they step up and they're able to learn a lot in that first half of the year and then really progress and get closer to the front in the second half of the year. Yeah, it's just one thing, you know, basically, you know, what Marquez did was was absolutely exceptional. You know, it hadn't been done since, well, Kenny Roberts in 78. 
uh, in quite a long time. So, you know, yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly with you, Steve, that, you know, we shouldn't be looking at Marquez as, as a rule, uh, what uh, rookies in MotoGP should be aspiring to. Um, that's very much the exception. Yeah, I mean, it, it's clear that Marquez is uh, is exceptional because, well, you just have to look at the record books and see that uh, basically his name is uh, at the top of most of the ones, uh, uh, most of them, and, and he's likely to take almost all of the rest of them. So, um, uh, yeah, it, it's different. Uh, speaking of rookies, to me, the, 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 the actually the two rookies which impressed me most were the uh, two Tech 3 boys, both uh, Zarco and um, uh, and. Volga, uh, both methodical and careful and uh, thoughtful, you know, built their pace, uh, adapted to riding the bike. Um, this is not really a surprise from uh, uh, from Zarco because that's that's the way that it's, all of his career has been. But um, I think it's going to be it's going to be very interesting to see where they where they go and they're ending. You know, they're they're finishing sort of basically around the top ten. That's more or less where you would expect to see someone on a uh, on a tech three bike so yeah i mean to me that was what what they achieved on their first couple of days on the bike was uh, was was perhaps most impressive and dave we saw two of the rookies like you mentioned rins having his big crash two broken vertebrae sam lowe's had a big crash the same corner pretty much an identical crash but there were two of the rookies that were caught out just with that uh, with that uh, turn 12 crash but we also saw ian one i think Suda went down there as well yeah. a couple of other riders and really, it's just that big. Two of the rookies, two guys that need as much track time as they can, just uh, caught out by the the same crash that could have happened to anyone. But uh, really, he's put uh, rims and lows onto it. Bit of a back foot, as Neil said. Over the the winter now, they can try and recover and get themselves ready for Sepang. But just losing out in those couple of days mileage in Valencia, and then also three days in Jerez. Obviously, a big loss for rims and uh, lows didn't really get too much running down in, in Jerez either. Uh, the uh, I think the biggest problem is more psychological because it does mean I mean what you're when you make a, such a big change when you actually get into MotoGP it's what it's what riders have been uh, it's what they aspire to all of their careers from from a very young age onwards where to actually get there you want to be it's the the, the mental strength which you actually need to uh, succeed in the championship and so to sort of get there and and find things going wrong um, that can be a real that can be a real problem that can be um, um, you have to be mentally very very strong to actually sort of cope with that kind of adversity of course I mean whenever you're testing you can always fall off and hurt yourself you can always crash uh, that's that's the the risk of the sport um, but uh, you, you what uh, what it needs is the is sort of the mental fortitude to pick yourself up dust yourself off and get uh, get back on again and especially crashing just before the winter break that can be very very difficult because you've um, uh, you know you, you don't get back on the uh, on the bike for two months which is um, well more yeah, two and a half months and that's uh, that, that can be it's easy to get yourself distracted to, to, to dig you know to, to go down the rabbit hole and dig yourself into a uh, into quite a dark place Neil you've seen it time and time again as well where just that psychological impact for riders it definitely is the most important thing that you see in racing isn't it like I think if you look back to this year I think uh, we've seen a lot of examples of riders basically just once they get into that bit of a hole trying to dig themselves out of it they just get themselves deeper and deeper yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Sam Lowe's, like Rins, is, is another guy that probably, you know, the winter breaks come at the right time. Um, you know, he also had a bit of a difficult end of the year. Um, 
you know, obviously didn't go how he would have liked it to. And, um, you know, the, the, the test was, was, was difficult for him. You know, you were speaking to him at Valencia, Steve, and, you know, I think he wasn't quite letting on just how badly he was, he was beaten up. He was really in a bit of a bad way, I think, uh, on the Tuesday night and the Wednesday morning. And, uh, you know, and then he said, you could just see when he was riding the bike in, in Jerez, you know, he didn't look comfortable at all. Um, you know, he was a long way off, like full fitness. Um, so in the end, I think he, he only completed, you know, a small fraction of, of what he would have hoped to. But, you know, he still has nine days ahead of him. He's had some good experience on the Aprilia bike, um, you know, in the lead up to the Valencia test. Um, and, you know, it's... You know he's got he's got some time to kind of pull it all together, and you know and come back mentally and physically ready um, for Sepang. So you know, yeah, too early to be pushing the panic button. Yeah, like I think down in Valencia, I was talking to him on the Tuesday and uh, and the Wednesday, and he was he was fairly crocked after the crash. And even as you said, Neil, then once we got to to Hareth, you could still see the effects of it. But uh, talking, I went out for dinner with Sam on the Friday night, and uh, just talking to him, he said like the key thing for him was that even though he wasn't able to ride the bike in any in any real way that was able to show what he could do. He still learned a lot from the Hareth test, just from being able to work with the team and try and see what they want for from the electronics and how they're able to actually use the bike in a certain way. And I think he, he probably would have gained a lot just from just looking to see what Aleish was doing on the bike as well and how he was approaching things. So I think that's the that's the one thing that it's it's easy to David, as you said, just go down the rabbit hole, but it's also pretty important whenever you do have these opportunities that you can smell the roses and I think for Lowe's he went out trackside at Valencia just to see what other riders were doing he did the same I think at Hareth and it was just to, to give a little bit more insight into what some of the MotoGP riders are doing because it's very easy just to get too centered on what you're doing and not look at the big picture as well so that can be one of the advantages just from almost being forced to to be uh, to be on the sidelines but uh, obviously though the the main story for everyone for the Valencia test was just the chance to see Lorenzo onto the Ducati as well. And uh, I think for me, it was really interesting just to see that even from the first couple of days, he was still riding that bike like you expect to see Lorenzo ride the bike. And I know both of you are really impressed just by how smooth he looked on the bike. And also just that uh, he looked still to be able to carry the, the same Lorenzo mid-corner speed that we've come to expect from whenever he was riding the Yamaha. Yeah, I mean, I the, the, obviously the, the reason that I go out uh, trackside uh, both during the race, or, well, during the race weekend, during practice usually, and then at the test is when people are uh, switching bikes, you're looking for sort of visual clues in terms of their body language and all the rest of it. And uh, Lorenzo looks just as happy on the Ducati as he had looked on the... Um, uh, uh, as we had looked uh, as he'd looked on the on the MR so he was just um, um, yeah it, it's clear that he's he's adapted to it he's still got a lot of, he's still got work to do um, uh, going out and seeing him up through sort of uh, 10 12 13 14 um, he was sort of still learning but he looked he looked very very comfortable he looked just as comfortable on the on the bike as he had looked on uh, on the Yamaha um, he'll have to try and use the strength of the bike a little bit uh, a little bit more um, what was more interesting was his body language in the pits he was happy he was smiling um, he was you know perfectly uh, perfectly content um, uh, which he really hasn't had uh, uh, throughout the uh, throughout the season 
Um, there, I mean, you know, the the the, the tension in the Mobistar Yamaha uh, garage since basically since the end of last year, um, it, it's been there all year. Uh, and although I don't think Lorenzo has actually suffered very badly with it, it still sort of takes a toll. It, it makes it more difficult to concentrate. Um, and uh, it, he was clearly doing an awful lot better at actually handling it. Um, or, well, he, sorry, he felt a lot better in the Ducati garage being free of this weight. Um, uh, so I think that's going to be positive once they actually start working. Um, it's going to be interesting to talk to him about it next year when he's actually allowed to talk. Um, the comments from Ducati also were very positive, said they you know, they were impressed by his feedback, by the way his way of working, his, uh, his communication basically said, you know, he's a professional. He goes in and he points out all the things which are wrong that uh, that 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 need working on and 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 gets on with it. So yeah, that was very. It was in. It was impressive. I think there is a very good chance, as Neil said at the beginning, um, that uh, we could see back to back victories with him winning Valencia and uh, Qatar because he's just so incredibly fast at Qatar. Yeah, and uh, you know, you look back at when Rossi first went to Ducati, obviously. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about a completely different uh, bike and a completely different structure within the factory um, that's, you know, it's working at the moment. But, you know, Rossi said it took him about two laps to realize that the, the bike wasn't going to be competitive, that he wasn't going to be able to, you know, well, it, it didn't really fit his, uh, you know, his strengths. Um, and just to see Lorenzo sitting in the garage after that first run, sitting, speaking to the, the stoner, to Gabarini, his new crew chief, uh, you know, laugh and smile. And you could just tell that there wasn't that sort of initial pessimism, you know, and you speak to most professional riders and they say it, it usually only takes them a couple of laps to think, to know whether they have, uh, they've made the right switch or not. And, you know, it certainly seemed in Lorenzo's case that, that he knew he had, he could be, he could be fast. Um, yeah. And I, you know, just, I went out. Um, in Valencia, um, next to the the media room, there's uh, there's kind of like a little terrace which overlooks the the pit lane, and I kind of went there to watch Lorenzo take his first run out. And even by the end of his first run, the way he was pitching the bike into the first corner, you know, you you wouldn't have, it just looked exactly as if it was on the Yamaha, you know, the same lean angle, you know, the same kind of laconic style and very smooth body movement, maximum lean angle. Um, you know, it was very, very impressive and I think, you know, can really, um, you know, for a guy that has a lot of reasons to be motivated going into 2017, uh, that can be very positive. Yeah, I mean, the the, the contrast with Rossi is uh, is huge. Uh, it's a completely different bike. It's a completely different team. You can't really compare it, but I do remember um, very vividly uh, going and watching in 2000, at the end of 2010, um, uh, going and watching uh, Rossi on the Friday and Saturday during practicing how he was in complete control of the Yamaha who was pitching in, in and out of corners. Um, then going out on his, for his first run on, on the Ducati, and he just looked awful. He looked stiff and uncomfortable. And it was clear that he really, really, he was really hating actually being on the bike. He didn't look like he was, uh, uh, he was comfortable at all. Um, that is what I saw with, uh, w with Lorenzo. Um, Lorenzo looked, you know, like he'd been riding the bike, riding the bike for months. So, um, yeah. Yeah. It's always one of the funniest things for me is whenever you hear riders talk about, no, no, we, 
you know, it's only the first day on the bike, it's only the first test, we're only at Sepang, we're only at Phillip Island, we're only at Qatar, we're only at round one. You know, it's still early doors yet, but then when you talk to them at the end of the season, it's like, I knew that bike was <laughs> shit from whenever I rode down pit lane in Valencia. But they won't say it, obviously, at the time. They need to they need to get themselves geared <laughs> up. But uh, Yeah, and I think another thing that, uh, that bodes well for Lorenzo is that, you know, from what Delinia said um, on the Monday before the test and then on the Wednesday at the end of the test, also what Davizioso was saying, they all know what the weakness of the bike is. And that is, you know, the ability to turn at speed mid-corner. Um, and, you know, they know that. And every, everything that they're going to be doing over the winter months is going to be aimed at trying to remedy that uh, that issue. Um, I also think that's one of the one of the reasons Iannone was so fast in Suzuki. He just couldn't believe how brilliantly it turned, you know. It turned on a sixpence. Uh, the Ducati doesn't quite do that. Um, but, you know, with, uh, with Delinio's expertise and the way he's organized the kind of the staff and you know everyone in the factory you can you can almost expect that that will be in some way remedied by the time we get to Sepang well we've been speaking about Lorenzo a lot but David I thought it was very interesting uh, you did a, a little analysis piece um, after the Valencia test where you were analyzing uh, the lap times and not just the fastest laps but you know kind of race runs or lap times added up one another and it appeared that Mark Marquez had a fairly fierce and pace indeed um the new Honda, although he was kind of quick to say that it hadn't quite cured all of uh, the ills of 2015 and indeed 16, uh, it appears that it is, it is quite fast indeed. Uh, it um, it is quite fa- well. Is it quite fast? Who knows? I mean, the trouble is, it's Mark Marquez riding it. So, um, um, uh, how much is how much is him? Certainly, it, it's certainly a very very different bike. It's clearly it's clear just from listening to it that they've changed the um, uh, changed the engine, uh, the engine firing interval. Uh, it's now running a um, it's it's now obviously a big bang. Um, everything is a lot deeper. You can actually hear it really easily when you're out on track um i haven't got around to uh, uh sort of dissecting the uh dissecting the audio of it uh, i shall have to do that at some point but it's i mean it it it's so obvious that it's uh, that it's ridiculous um marcus said that in fact marcus and Perosha both said they were having problems because with the with the new engine um they need to completely or that they need to change the engine maps because the engine character is so different they need to change the engine maps the torque maps to uh, uh get the best out of it um, but if this is Marquez's pace on the on a bike which isn't set up properly it's going to be a little bit uh, terrifying for the opposition to think what happens when they when they do get it set up um, it was still uh, wheeling too much out of corners they were still sort of spinning up out of corners uh, they need to work on that and uh, uh, it, what interested me at, at Valencia was Marquez was quite um uh, well he was, he was quite strong in his comments about uh the fact that yeah that Honda still have an awful lot of work to do uh, that they that they still need to improve the bike a lot um uh, they cancelled they were initially going to go down and do the test at uh, uh, at Jerez but they uh, they decided against that which um is a well they said because they've got all of the information from the um uh, from the Valencia test uh, they got through their entire program uh, it seemed that seemed um, to be more of an excuse than anything else. Um, uh, I, I, 
it my impression is that um uh Marcus and Pedrosa said uh, this is good but we need uh, a lot more changes there's no point in testing anything if we can't uh, you know if we haven't got something better to test so i think uh, i think they need bigger changes i think we'll see a much uh, uh, i think we'll we'll see a different bike again at uh, at uh, sepang and that'll be much closer to the actual bike which they start racing at qatar neil when you look at uh, like as david said they cancelled the harath test more than likely it's that uh, well they say that they've got their full program of work completed and Valencia, but as David said, it's more likely that they just don't feel that there's anything that they can make a big step forward with uh, in the space of a week. But when you look at Honda for this year, like Mark has won the championship and it was a great season by him, probably the best we've, we've seen from him already. But uh, you'd have to look at it that it was more just circumstances as well helping Honda. And, and really, for next year, they do need to make that big step forward. But we were down at Hareth as well and we talked to Jack Miller and definitely looked like they are trying some things. And uh, making a step forward, but whether or not it's a big enough step forward probably won't come clear until we get to the Sepang test next year. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, you look at uh, uh, this time a year ago, and there seemed to be no real joined up thinking from Honda. Um, you know, the new engine didn't seem to, uh, you know, didn't seem to remedy any of the issues of uh, of, of what Marquez and Pedrosa had, had ridden the previous year. Uh, you know, they had lost Casey Stoner as a test rider, and there were all these kind of things going on. Um, okay, the the two factory lads weren't in Harath, but Miller was there testing for the the HRC test team, not with Mark VDS. He was there with Hiroshi Ama. Um, you know, and it was quite. I thought it was quite a clever move. Um, if what indeed David has said is correct, there's no point wasting um, you know two test days. You know, the the, the guys they only have five uh, five test days all year, including 2017 to test. So you know, if there's nothing big. Um, to test and there's there's no real point doing it so why not send you know Jack Miller an HRC contracted rider and a highly capable rider in my eyes um, along to you know work through these electronics issues and get the electronics working in line with this new vastly different engine um, and I thought it was good you know Miller was there he was working with his new crew chief Ramon Orin um, Pedroza's new crew chief um, was also there just you know understanding everything trying to get a idea of what the bike needed and looking at the electronics and things like that um and you know speaking to miller he was uh, he was very 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 happy um and felt that the although marquez was you know was quite tough as, as you said david miller was really positive um in terms of the bike just being so much more easier to ride part of that was obviously because of the chassis uh, this new chassis that he's using, um, but he was also very complimentary about the engine, um, saying that perhaps there is a little bit of an issue on corner exit, but the bike to ride on the whole is a lot easier than it was before, and he was able to continue. Um, he was able to maintain a very consistent pace throughout his kind of race run um, on the Thursday at Hareth. Um Yeah, and he was positively glowing, uh, you know, when he was uh, when he was complimenting the bike. Yeah, um, what's interesting is that uh, uh, Honda have started using their satellite riders as test riders a little bit more. We saw that last year with uh, crutch loading, uh, for example, going to Sepang to do the uh, 
uh, to do the test there uh, for the uh, to well, basically it was a Michelin test on um, uh, on the new asphalt. Um, instead of sending either Marquez or Pedrosa, they sent Crutchlow out, um, and he worked on a whole bunch of stuff for uh, for Honda while he was there. Now they're also using Miller in the same capacity um, to you know not just for Miller himself, but also they're giving it, giving him some some test donkey work to do. Um, uh, obviously, he's fast enough and and and, and he's uh, sort of smart enough to be able to understand the the, the change to the electronics. Uh, HRC need to work a lot on the engine mapping, so why not give it to Miller and and, and let him sort of sort that out for the uh, for the new engine configuration rather than waste a test day for uh, 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 for the Repsol boys. So um, yeah, I certainly found that uh, uh, certainly found that interesting. He seemed to have a good pace. Uh, I ran a whole bunch of numbers, and it was clear that it was uh, Alvaro Bautista who um, uh, had the best race pace on uh, uh, on the Thursday, but his race pace um, wasn't the one which really impressed, uh, well, all of us most. What impressed all of us most was uh, 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 Johnny Ray on the uh, Kawasaki Superbike, who was just blisteringly fast there all weekend. Oh, sorry, all weekend. All Certainly all test. Yeah, I think it was interesting, Dave, just to, to see that. And obviously for me, I've spent the year in the Superbike paddock and uh, it's definitely very different to the GP paddock when you look at the bikes. They're very different when you look at just the just the, the cost of what it takes to, to be on the Superbike grid is very different. But what we saw from Johnny Ray was just how impressive those bikes really are. And I don't think that over the course of an 18 race season with, you know, a 25 lap race that uh, a superbike is going to be close to what we see from an M1 or a, you know, a, a Ducati or, a, or an RCV. But I think that uh, what we saw in Jerez was a key indication that on that one given day in those track circumstances, those conditions in the dry, that a superbike could set really competitive lap times. But the track conditions were... 40 degrees less than what we see at a Grand Prix. Um, Hareth is always a track that as the track temperature rises, the grip starts to fall away. So it's not really a like-for-like comparison. It's not uh, tires that are designed to operate in that kind of operating window for a MotoGP bike. Whereas on a Superbike, the Pirelli tires you can go out and you can buy yourself and you're able to, to use them in from like 10 degrees track temperature to 60 degrees track temperature. So they've got a really wide operating base. And uh, that for me was just uh, another another indication of just how good the tires are in superbikes to be able to to operate in that window. But just that uh, you know this was still another case of you know just circumstances giving them that opportunity to be able to lap so competitively. Yeah, that that is certainly true. But um, uh, when you actually compare uh, Ray's race pace to, for example, the uh, uh, that of uh, the, the last two winners there, uh, Sykes and Davies, um, he was just ridiculously fast compared to those as well, uh, to, compared to them as well. Um, he was, yeah, it's just he was yeah tires or not wherever you compare him to him, he was he was punching well above his uh, uh, well above his weight on the uh, on the equipment he is but he you know he's an exceptional rider and he um um there everyone was calling for him for, to to be in in GPs he definitely deserves to be in motor GP but he's just never in, he never had the opportunity um uh, so you know one of those things never going to be but he's going to be he's obviously going to be um, uh, challenging for breaking Fogarty's records i think yeah, and I definitely like I can't underestimate just how good Johnny Ray is, and I can't understate it because we've saw this year again 
just how strong a rider he was. The Kawasaki didn't suit him. We, we saw countless times where he had uh, problems with the false neutrals and different things, but uh, he won the championship just by just being consistent and being able to finish on the podium all but three races, and he was smart throughout the whole season. But I think also with the Harath test, it's worth remembering that the likes of Tom Sykes, they weren't looking to do a 20-lap run. They were looking to try and figure out how to, to use the new regulations about batteries and uh, different things just to try and find a setting with the bike. I think Chaz Davis spent most of the time working on just uh, electronic setup as well. So for both of those guys, we didn't really see you know a proper full race simulation. And it's also worth remembering that uh, Davis won the last six races in the championship. So, you know, um, more than likely to have seen such a big gap that we saw between, I think you, you did a, you did some calculations on it, Dave, with their best 20 laps or something yeah. like that. And to see such a big uh, difference, it just shows the different program that both of them are working on as well. Well, yeah, well, this is true. I mean, also, uh, I did run some uh, uh, some uh, lap time comparisons. Um, uh, on Thursday, uh, Ray actually ran uh, two race simulations. Um, his second one was quicker than his than his first one, uh, but also his actual pace in that race simulation was when you map that against sort of basically his his was it his twenty fastest laps. Um, it was still very impressive. It was still very very quick. So the fact that his race simulation was so consistent and so consistently fast was uh, impressive enough uh, uh, of its own of its own accord yeah 100 percent, Dave. like just to be able to to set those times time and time again i think one thing that uh, you know, it's, it's very it's very difficult really to understand exactly just how how good you have to be to be able to set what we see the likes of lorenzo when he gets in front or jonathan on that uh, run as well but if you're sitting at home reading this or listening to this sorry and uh, you want to just see just how difficult it is to do that Get out a stopwatch and try and stop your clock at the five second interval, eight seconds, 12 seconds, 19 seconds, and just simulate what it is to actually hit those breaking marks lap after lap after lap and try to do that for 20 laps. And then you can see just how, how amazing the job that these guys do whenever they're able to put in these consistent times. But Neil, we were at trackside uh, quite a bit over the course of the few days that you were down and you got to, to see... Um, a world superbike on track again. It's been the first time since Phillip Island for you, but you were you were noticing a couple of different things about Ray's riding style as well, just from the few corners we watched as well, and how that compared to some of the other riders. And it's just interesting to see what you what you have to say about uh, just the difference between him and what we saw from the likes of Sykes or Davis, um, just at that one test. Yeah, well, it was it was interesting to watch Johnny um, in to turn two at Jerez, the tight right hand hairpin. Um, we kind of were standing watching him on the exit there and he does have a sort of phenomenal ability from when he's just on the corner exit to go from full lean, uh, you know, to his right to basically picking the bike up and he's able to do it in just a snapshot, you know, very, very quickly indeed. And it's in that moment where he kind of almost picks the bike up and straightens it out that he's able just to get in the pace and go for it. Um, and then you uh, spent a little bit of time watching him at turn five going into the Cedar Ponds curve you know the uphill right-hander um and just you know the the, the confidence uh, he had in the front end of that motorbike was was quite impressive indeed um you know going in almost just with the it, it almost looked like the front was locked um yeah really really impressive indeed um but steve you mentioned a little bit about about the rule changes for world superbikes in 2017 um it doesn't seem to 
have appeared to have slowed Ray down. But Tom Sykes was kind of saying that uh, he feels it could be a bit of a hindrance to him. Um, why were these rule changes working for Ray and not working for Sykes so well? Uh, well, the main reason that they were working well for Ray was that uh, he basically has been using this kind of spec of bike for most of last season anyway. The, the changes relate to things like uh, throttle body, so you're no longer able to have a split throttle body in World Superbikes. You just have to go back to having a standard throttle body. You also have a, a new change that's been brought in for batteries as well. So basically the size of a battery that you're able to air freight is limited just by air traffic laws. And uh, basically the Kawasaki's have a very large battery. And uh, for Tom Sykes, this gives him the, the feeling of inertia that he wants in a bike. Whereas whenever the new regulations have a much smaller battery, it changes exactly just how that inertia feels for Tom Sykes and what the engine feels like for him. So for Sykes, it basically puts the bike closer to what Johnny Ray wants from a bike and further away from what Sykes wants. And we talked to Tom a few times over the week, and it was pretty clear that just that, uh, that need to change his riding style is uh, something that's been a, a major bugbear for him. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, as you say, I think, um, you know, this, uh, you know, Tom's someone that likes to brake very late, get on the gas very hard. Uh, you know, he's a very hard accelerator and late breaker. And um, I think this this new kind of uh, engine characteristic will be a little more soft, you know, and as you say, suited to a kind of smoother style like Jonathan Ray. Um, so, yeah, Sykes seem to be um, a little bit, uh, not angry, but a little bit, Heaved, um, when I was speaking to him on Tuesday night that the rules have changed and he feels that uh, it's kind of very much to his detriment. Yeah, and I think uh, it'd be interesting just to see how that, uh, that that works out over the course of the winter. We've still got two more unofficial tests, maybe three more for Kawasaki and then the official Phillip Island test as well. So plenty of days left to, to really understand it fully. I think that the, the split throttle bodies is one that uh, can be solved pretty easily by Kawasaki. It's just going to take time just to work on the electronics and Sykes should be fine for that. But the, the feeling for the engine inertia, that's definitely something that's going to take a lot longer to find a good solution for Sykes. But uh, Neil, you talked there about uh, just how confident Ray was in the front end of the bike. When we were talking to Eugene Laverty on Tuesday as well, Eugene was talking about how he was out on track beside Ray at one stage and uh, it was on a, a patchy wet track. You were out on slicks and uh, Eugene first test back on a world superbike, first test back in Pirelli's. And uh, he, didn't quite, uh, he didn't quite have the confidence to be able to push hard in those conditions. But he said Jonathan Ray was just absolutely flying and just total confidence, total commitment and total belief in the bike as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think he was quite taken aback at just how quick Ray was when he was following him. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a good opportunity to see Eugene Laverty out in uh, a Prelius, um, you know, world superbike machine. Um his first time back in the championship in two years and you know a largely positive experience from from what he was saying um you know it's that the, the kind of the whole structure is very much in its its early phase um you've got the you know sean muir's smr team kind of running the team with a lot of aprilia factory staff um you know full factory bike more or less and you you could really see that in what eugene was testing at uh, at Jerez. you know i think he had two engines um 
to, to kind of choose between. Um, he also had some different suspension parts and, and things like that. And, you know, it seems that Aprilia are not just going to roll out the bike that Salvadori and De Angelis were using this year. Um, you know, they, they plan to make some significant improvements over the winter months um, for that, to, you know, to push Eugene and, you know, his new teammate Salvadori forward. Um, but yeah, but, uh, you know, maybe Eugene wasn't um, that fast on the timesheets, but, you know, certainly his comments about the bike's ability to turn, about the, uh, you know, the bikes, I guess any bike's ability to turn would be an improvement after you've been on the GP14 uh, for one full season. Um, but he was he was saying that the turn ability of the bike was great. Um, he also said that the electronics seemed to have taken a really big step forward compared to when he last rode the bike in 2013. Um, he said before it was always a bit of a an animal, um, you know, towards the end of the race, trying to manage tires and things like that. But he said, no, it seems very smooth. And he could go out and do 20 laps on it and not feel, you know, physically wrecked afterwards. Um, so, yeah, there's certainly um, positive signs for that. Uh, for that project being, you know, something that could perhaps even challenge the, you know, on occasion the Ducati and uh, the Kawasaki sort of hegemony that's existed for the last two years in that championship. Um, and it was it was positive also just to see, you know, obviously a pretty retesting their MotoGP bike in um, in in Jerez too. Um, but you know, kind of Romano Malvisiano, the Aprilia's main guy, basically was you know seen in the SMR garage, looking in and checking if everything was okay, whether they're engineers, you know, he's asking for their feedback and things like that. And you know, it's definitely a full factory effort in World Superbike. So, yeah, positive. Yeah, one of the things I remember from when I uh, went to watch World Superbikes at Misano last year was. Um, uh, was the, the fact that you weren't on the list, Dave? <laughs> when I was not on the list, uh, unusually, um, the one of the things which which I remember is a a, a couple of riders said that uh, uh, that basically the Aprilia was the best uh, was the best package on the grid, but it needed to have full factory support, and if you didn't have the full factory support, you didn't have the, the factory engineers setting it up. Um, uh, then it was very difficult, and I think you saw that a few times this year during the uh, during the World Superbike season. That the sometimes the bike was fast, um, other times it wasn't so fast, and it just really depended on on whether they managed to get the the bike in the in, in the setup window. Yeah, and that level of support is key in in World Superbikes as well. It's it's something that's actually surprised me is just how important it is in that championship just to have that right level of support. I think it's easy for. Like I came across from MotoGP last year, and it's easy just to to look at what GP does and think that uh, well, Superbike's obviously going to be a step back, and you know you won't need quite as much resources. But uh, I think uh, you know for each of you went to one race this year, and Neil, you were at that test again, and uh, it definitely is a case that uh, you need just as much support in that championship. And I think that's been one of the eye openers for Yamaha as well, is that uh, you know they didn't have that. Uh, quite the right level of support they struggled this year for next year michael vandermark joins the team as well so it's vandermark and lowe's and david obviously as a as a dutchman now you can uh, talk passionately about your your compatriot well i i did actually have some dutch people on twitter uh, contacting me and saying what's going on with michael because he did seem um he did seem to be quite slow and looking on the on the timesheets i think they didn't look like he was particularly impressive obviously i wasn't at the test so i didn't see uh, didn't see him but i will i'm very interested to hear your impressions of uh, van der mark on the uh, on the mr and uh, how he got on and what he looked like 
Well, when I went on to speak to him, he basically said, I can't talk to you and then walked away. So I, I'm afraid <laughs> I can't really, <laughs> I'm afraid I can't really give you anything on that. So Steve, what did he tell you? Van der Mark, of course, still under Honda contract and was under specific instructions not to talk about the Yamaha. And uh, I think he, uh, he got a text from, from uh, uh, Yamaha's press officer as well, just uh, you know, wondering how his first day on the bike went at uh, Aragon a couple of weeks ago. And uh, Van der Mark just replied saying, sorry, I'm not allowed to talk about the bike. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, do, I do know from uh, talking to a few people in the team and uh, talking, myself and Neil talked to Paul Denning as well. And uh, it was a case that uh, you know, Van der Mark finding his feet, settling in, just trying to find out exactly what the Yamaha is like. And also as well, just trying to find out what the team is like. He's obviously only raced for Tenkata in stock 600 super sports and uh, world Superbikes. So, you know, he's, he's had to try and adapt to new surroundings. And I think that's really all that, uh, that the first couple of tests can do. But uh, he was able to set a lot of consistent lap times, just as you say, David, not uh, particularly eye-catching times. But it was, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how he does when we come back in uh, Portimao, I think is the next Yamaha test at the end of January. And it'll be interesting just to see with new parts, whether or not they can actually make a step forward because they had a, a new fuel tank for this week, a new seat unit. They had some new um, brake and suspension parts, but nothing really too major. And they didn't actually get to, to really work on the electronics. So uh, it, maybe by the time we have the next test, that's where we'll be able to see exactly what... Uh, we can expect from Van der Mark at the start of the season. Yeah, one of the things which is interesting about Van der Mark is the fact that, um, uh, as you say, he spent all of his time in uh, with Tankata, and so um, he spoke Dutch all the time. You know, he spoke Dutch in the garage, spoke Dutch to his, uh, to, I think, uh, I think to his crew chief. He spoke, he spoke Dutch to everyone, um, uh, and now he's off to uh, 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 to Yamaha, where he's surrounded by English people, so he's got to speak English, and his English is is outstanding. It's you know, like most Dutch people, it's almost perfect. Um, yeah, yours is pretty good, Dave. Yeah, for a Dutch person, my uh, my English is uh, your Dutch is shit, like, but uh, you know, your English is pretty good. <laughs> That's uh, uh, well. That's that's part of my part of my uh, quest to integrate with the uh, with uh, with my new nation, um, uh, which means I speak English better than I speak my Dutch. Um, uh, but no, I mean it, it's going to be interesting to see how how that gets on because the you know the, the, the again. All of the changes that it's that communication which is which is the difficult part. Actually, communicating what you mean. It takes a little while for crew chiefs to sort of be able to, to decode what riders are trying to tell them, and for riders to decode what um, what crew crew chiefs can mean. So um, uh, yeah, we'll we'll see how that develops. But we'll see how that develops for for basically everyone who's swapping bikes. Okay, guys, well, that takes us to the end of the show and uh, a good recap there of what we saw in the Valencia tests and the Jerez tests as well. And uh, just uh, thanks for joining us, Neil. Thanks for joining us, David. Thanks, Steve. Uh, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Neil. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, just remember that uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, you can follow us at ParticPassPod. And also, if you want to follow us on Facebook, we're at uh, ParticPassPodcast on Facebook as well. And uh, also, if you're listening to us on iTunes, if you can leave us a review and uh, also rate the podcast, it helps other listeners find the podcast much easier. So thanks again for listening and uh, see you all soon.
Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. I'm Stephen English and with me today is David Emmett and Neil Morrison. And uh, we'll be talking about the recent testing that we've seen in Spain after the MotoGP season has come to a close. <laughs> Almost. Come to a close. Almost. Santa come Claus. Claus. Come, to come to a Santa Claus. <laughs> Actually, in fairness, do you know what? We've got David Emmett here. Do you know what film I was watching last night? What's that? I was watching Beetlejuice last night. <laughs> and... Just like Beetlejuice, David Emmett's job is there to scare little children. So when I say Moto Matters three times, David Emmett will no doubt come onto the radio for us all. Um, I'll get started now. So, 